Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, last time we considered the Lord's providence and Paul uh, interacted with the Corinthian church. And Paul made it very clear that he doesn't just believe this doctrine, but he's totally internalized this doctrine in the sense that he was pushed to a point uh, where he had to see that either he trusted in Christ as he himself uh, got to a point of despair, and yet he saw the grace of God certainly pushed him through that and walked him through that very moment. And so the Apostle Paul understands that God is a shield and defender. One of the things in terms of our Christian walk in the covenant of grace, the promise of God, is that he is a shield and defender. And so when we hear this, this teaching in our catechism, it's tempting to say, well, this is just an old doctrine, really not that essential. We're an advanced people, right? We've heard arguments like that in our day and age. The reality is this doctrine is essential. If we deny that Christ is the sole basis of our coming before the Father, the sole basis of redemption, the means as our shield and deliverance, we have nothing. It cannot be Christ plus something else. That's what the catechism is teaching us. And so when we look at that, and we understand that Christ is the one who has redeemed, does this become somewhat of an exclusive claim or an elitist claim that Christ is the only way to heaven? How do we know that this claim is true? And why is this so essential? Well, as we consider this, we'll see redeemed in Christ alone. And secondly, confident in Christ alone. And so let's begin with redeemed in Christ alone. Well, the obvious point uh, that the catechism lays out is that Christ is our Savior. Uh, we are those who would be in a world of hurt if we did not have Christ. Uh, we have to understand that the fall of Adam uh, does not just lead to an uncomfortable life or a life uh, that has some struggle but it leads to eternal damnation. And you think about those, those words, and it's rather chilling. Eternal damnation means that we will never be cut off from God. We're still going to experience God and see God, but we're cut off from his mercy, cut off from his love, cut off from his benevolence, and the only thing we will endure for eternity is his wrath. So we shouldn't think of hell or eternal punishment as God being absent from this place, but rather the love, mercy, compassion, and grace of God being absent. We will only be experiencing his justice. So when you think about that claim and that declaration of eternal damnation, this tells us we're in a pretty serious predicament. Uh, it tells us this isn't something we're just going to climb out of this and figure our way out. And this is where the catechism isn't just trying to set up some sort of an exclusive club. You know, we're the ones that just believe in Christ. We're the real elite ones. Uh, all the other people don't really have it together. 
The catechism is saying this, this isn't a preferential thing. This isn't optional. It, it can't be, I trust in Christ and I sort of trust in my works or I'm going to figure out how to get into heaven uh, through some other scheme and then Christ will sort of help me. The point the catechism is making is the only way to be right with God is to be one who is found in Christ, taking hold of him by faith. We see part of this in the, in the example of this from Scripture. We're going to have Jacob trusting in his scheming, right? Genesis 32, going to meet his brother, send spies across the river. They say Esau has 400 some men. So what does Jacob do? He arranges his family and I always wonder what it is like for Leah and all those associated with Leah to be put first and then to have his more treasured ones after that. I mean, you, you really figure out the pecking order pretty quick there, don't you? But nevertheless, this is what Jacob does. He takes a less favored bunch of his family, puts them first, and then he takes his favored bunch and puts them last. And he says in his own mind, this way, if Esau attacks, I can get away basically with my favored ones. And so when, when you hear that, you say, okay, well, Jacob's just being responsible. But what does Jacob do after that point? Then he kneels down and prays. Now, it's not wrong for us to plan. It's not wrong for us to be responsible. After all, the Apostle Paul tells us to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, which means we do have to use our brain and, and engage ourselves in our day-to-day -day life and discern the best decisions by the providence of God. But the problem in Genesis 32 is Jacob is not praying, Lord, grant me wisdom as to how to navigate this. And Lord, you promised to be a shield and protector. Protect me. And you have to understand this is a pretty serious scenario. Because the Lord has said that he will bring about his covenant line through Jacob, his victory through Jacob. And it seems that Esau is going to crush him, which means that the serpent seed is going to prevail. There's another reason where Jacob should be reminding the Lord of his promises and what the Lord has said. And so when, when we hear that and we internalize it, we say, okay, so we can kind of do an implication from Genesis 32. We can appeal, appeal to a document written by man saying Christ is exclusive, but where do we really see this taught and instructed as being essential? And this is where I thought Acts chapter 3 to 4 uh, was so important to set this into context. Uh, because we have this story of Peter and John in the midst of, San of the Sanhedrin. So basically, this is a priestly group, as mentioned. Uh, you have the elders of the people. Uh, you have members of the Pharisees. You have the scribes or the lawyers who come together. It's basically the ruling council of Israel. Now, we're familiar of, with this ruling council of Israel, because this is the council that has said Jesus of Nazareth is not the Messiah. So when you read this, it's important to understand Peter doesn't just say, um, Jesus and the authority of Jesus, I heal you. See, Peter could do that, but he's very specific. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who has been raised from the dead, is the one who has healed you. So when you hear that, Peter is giving no wiggle room at all. And the importance of this is because when you think of Acts being the second volume to Luke's gospel, Luke has laid out the Sanhedrin sentenced this man to death. In fact, John records this Jesus of Nazareth being identified uh, on the cross 
as a name of Christ. And so when, when you think of this charge and, and what the leaders have done, uh, Luke recounts this. We have the Sanhedrin meeting together. Uh, for this group of men, Sadducees, as we know, do not believe in the, in the resurrection. As they do not believe in the resurrection, this is a laughable thing. How can you say Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, the one who wasn't trained, the one who was a commoner, is the one who has healed this man. He's dead. He's in the grave. That's their claim. And this becomes a rather significant point, doesn't it? I mean, this, this is really what distinguishes us from being a Christian or not a Christian. If we're a Christian, we say, no, Jesus is not in the grave. He has been raised. He has triumphed over death. He has conquered death. If we're not a Christian, then we say, well, this Jesus isn't so essential. Uh, this Jesus may not be raised. It really doesn't matter. Well, the reality is, if Jesus is still in the grave, we have no Christianity. There is no reason for us to continue in worship and serving this God because his promises have fallen flat. So as the Sanhedrin then interacts with these men, they want to examine uh, these men uh, regarding this lame man who is all of a sudden walking. Now you would think that a miracle being done in your community is a good thing. Uh, you'd be thankful for it. You'd rejoice with the fact that this man is no longer begging uh, for his income and is, is completely incapacitated and has to be brought to this place. But instead we find they have a problem with this. And when Peter interacts with this lame beggar, he points out the true nature of wealth and riches. Because Peter says, I have no silver and gold. Now when you hear that, you think that the blind beggar would look away. So it's important, look at us, look us in the eye, let's interact. Now he still thinks he may get some alm out of this or some giving. But Peter says, but what I do give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so when, when you hear this, you're understanding the significance of the work of Christ, the exclusivity of this. This isn't Peter doing this in his piety. This isn't Peter doing this because he's more holier than us. This is Peter actually showing and demonstrating the reality that Jesus' resurrection power really does something. It overcomes death. And so when, when Peter identifies this miracle as being identified with Christ, this calls our attention to the reality of the Old Testament, uh, reality of Moses standing before Pharaoh and attesting to his authority. These miracles testify that it's not about the man, it's about the God who has sent the man. It gives them credibility and authority. And so when Peter does this miracle and gives credit to the Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, the reality is this Jesus is clearly not dead. That what he has done has truly brought about the redemptive purpose of God through his resurrection. And so when uh, Peter makes this case and speaks of Jesus of Nazareth, he's not lying about the reality of what's going on. Peter goes on then to be very specific about the problem. The problem is that they have crucified this man. And so you, you have to marvel at Peter's being very specific about this. 
It doesn't just say, oh, well, that was one Jesus of Nazareth you were talking about. I'm talking about the other Jesus of Nazareth. You see, that, that'd kind of be a safe way to skate out of this, right? But he's saying, no, this is the Jesus of Nazareth that was hung upon the cross. The Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified. Now, it's important that it's not Rome that conspired to do this. You crucified him. And so Peter wants the people to understand who's the cause of this. We know from Acts 2, 22 and 23, Peter says, yes, this is by the foreknowledge and plan of God. We can take comfort in knowing that by the providence of God, this is what he's decreed. But nevertheless, Peter still puts it on the individuals. You are responsible for this action. But what they have done in terms of their crucifixion God has overturned. I've used the language or the analogy from Bavink before, where you have the earthly courts making their ruling of sending Christ to death, but the heavenly courts overrule the earthly courts by raising Christ from the dead. And so the point Peter is making is that if this Christ stays in the grave, we have no Christianity. You can understand Paul recounting his uh, being mentored by Peter, where Paul himself, when he writes a great passage on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and the apostle Paul says that the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, if Christ is still in the grave and there is no means of, of coming to the Father, there is no redemption, well, then we may as well just party. We may as well just live the Epicurean lifestyle of just living life to the fullest, doing whatever we want to do and not really worrying about any responsibility and just live out the pure fleshly pleasure. But Paul's point is Christ is raised from the dead. This is why we put to death the sin within ourselves. This is why we desire to conform to Christ because there is true everlasting life that is at work within us. And so Peter, at this point, as he interacts with the leaders of Israel, wants them to know with great uh, specificity or, or being very specific or very exact that the Jesus with whom, in, in whom he's done this miracle is the Jesus of Nazareth. This is a Jesus who has died, and this is a Jesus who has been raised from the dead. And so we say, okay, so we understand it's in Christ alone that God has accomplished his redemptive purpose. It's only in Christ that we have this. But the catechism, like we've seen with the providence of God, doesn't just talk about providence, but it wants us to really understand we can know a doctrine, but like in the Hebrew language, we really have to know it in the sense that it becomes part of who we are. So the catechism could actually just stop where it does, but it goes on. And it wants us to understand that we have to be confident in Christ alone. And so it's asking, what about those who trust in the dead saints? Or what about those who trust in themselves or their own works? In other words, those who say, I trust in Christ, but I want something else. The catechism is saying that we have to believe Christ is the only way. It is not Christ plus another option. It is not Christ plus my works. It is not Christ plus my schemes. It is not Christ 
plus whatever else I want to trust in, because that's another way that we see idolatry working out, where, yeah, I believe in God, but I also have all these other gods that I believe in, and, and God's just the top God. Catechism is saying when we truly understand the promise of the gospel, we see that we have an exclusive relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is to be our Savior, and there is no other way for us to enter into the presence of God. So the catechism is then reminding us that our fruits will truly show if we trust in anything else, right? So Rome trusts in uh, Christ, but also by the grace of God, our works will, will finish the work of Christ and we can attain the blessing of justification. Uh, we talked about Jacob and Esau, where we see his struggle of scheming, then praying, rather than saying, no, God's my shield and defender. I'm going to proceed on that and the Lord will give me wisdom and the seed of the woman will not be stamped out. And that's the confidence that the catechism is calling us to believe that our God really is our defender, our shield, the one who goes before us. And so the catechism is telling us that, yes, we actually do need to submit to our Lord. We need to be content with the Lord's providence. Uh, we need to really want to do his will as our fundamental desire. We need to be honest about uh, who we are as a struggling people as we come before our God. And so in terms of this living this out and what we see with this blind man and going back to the book of Acts. When we find this, we, we ask them, well, well, how do we live this out? Well, what does this look like? What does this mean? Well, as Peter has given this warning of healing the, the blind man, he wants the individuals to understand that they can't be ignorant of what they've done. And so there, there is a call for them to truly own the reality you sent him to death. You've denied the way of life. And it is intended to cut the individuals to the heart, like in Pentecost. Oh my goodness. We really did stand in the courtroom of Pilate and we did chant crucify. What do we do now? Where's our hope? And Peter doesn't tell them to do a bunch of steps or climb a bunch of stairs or say a bunch of Hail Marys. Peter says, repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. And as he gives that exhortation, he's basically saying, turn your course and join to the church. And so Peter here wants the crowd to also repent. When we hear this call to repent, he's calling to our attention the history of the prophets. Moses uh, is the one who's going to be the paradigm prophet, Deuteronomy 18. The Lord's going to raise up a prophet like unto Moses from your people. Uh, the one who uh, has a false prophecy that doesn't come true, don't listen to him. Uh, but if, if his word comes true and he is a prophet, you ought to listen to him. And so Peter's saying, listen, this Christ who claimed to be the Christ that you sent to death has been raised from the dead. This confirms the very word that he preached, the very statement that he made. Therefore, this is the Christ. Now, when he calls them to repent and to turn their ways, I mean, repentance literally means a changing one's mindset, a changing one's course is what it means in, in the Greek text. Now, when, when we hear that, we hear repentance in the context of the Reformed faith, or Christianity, I should say. 
In terms of, of Christianity, when we talk about repentance, this isn't just turning around or turning one's course, as the Greek word implies. Uh, because the reality is we could just be like a dog chasing its tail, never arriving at any goal, and never really understanding the destination. Repentance in terms of Christianity is not just turning for turning's sake. It's not just moving for moving's sake. But it's actually turning our course so that we're realigned with the purpose of God. I was just talking with a friend about repentance and how much repentance is really necessary or expected, uh, dealing with uh, some other scenario. Uh, and so when, when we talked about this, I said, you know, it's interesting. There's some people I've heard in a discussion when we're at classes that make it sound like it's got to be this long, drawn-out, morbid-type thing. But it's always curious to me with David in Bathsheba where David's fasting and he's praying and, and he desires that this child would live. Well, the, the individuals that are tending to the child's life when the child dies, they're scared to tell David. They say, man, if he's broken like this uh, with the child flailing in life, what's he going to do when he finds out the child is dead? So eventually David inquires. They tell him the child has died. David gets up and he eats. And, and, and they're taken back by this. But it's the reality of what we see. David desires to show that humility, but he's waiting to submit to the providence of God. And he says that maybe God will relent. Maybe God uh, will, will change his mind and he'll look upon this and the child's life will be spared. But nevertheless, in this specific circumstance, God told me the child's life will not be spared. The child's life is not spared. I need to align my purpose with the purpose of God. That's what repentance is. And so it's not a matter of how long or how thorough or what this looks like, but it's truly one trying to change their course. And so what Peter is saying in this is he's turning to these individuals and saying, listen, uh, you need to be realigned with who this Jesus of Nazareth is. It's fine. I, I guess in, in your mind it's fine, I should say, that you don't believe in a bodily resurrection. You're free to believe that. Now, when Christ comes again and you're proven wrong, you're not going to be so happy with that doctrine. I can assure you of that. So Peter is saying, change your mind. Affirm the resurrected Christ. Embrace him. This is the reality of what they are called to do. They are to see that Christ is the only true way of life. He is the Messiah. And so as Peter goes on and he interacts with this group of leaders and with these individuals. He's addressed this to the people, but now as he's called into their presence in verses 10 through 12, as he uh, gives us this response or this defense of his faith, he makes it very clear to the leaders, this Jesus of Nazareth, that they've rejected. So again, it's, it's, it's a problem with the leaders and what they have done. It is, again, this Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified. I mean, I love how specific Peter is. There is no wiggle room in that definition. You know exactly who he's talking about. But Peter builds his case from the Old Testament in showing how this was anticipated and declared. And it's important to understand the flow of these psalms. Because the psalm that he's citing is Psalm 118. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but basically it's a group of hallelujah psalms 
Uh, hallelujah just comes from the Hebrew. Halal is to praise. Yah is short for Yahweh. So it's praise the Lord or praise Yahweh is all hallelujah means. So when you say hallelujah, you can say you know Hebrew. That's the upside of that. But the reality of these hallelujah psalms, when, when you see this working out, it begins in Psalm 113 of Israel celebrating the Feast of Booze. And it's celebrating the praise and goodness of God, and it ends in Psalm 118. So these are psalms that certainly the scribes would know well. These are psalms that children would know well uh, from the moment they could talk, literally. They, they would know these psalms. They, they would know this festival and, and doing this year after year. Uh, in our tradition, it'd be a lot like question answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, our children know that question. Maybe not word for word, but at least the substance of what it's saying. And as they grow up, more word for word as it becomes internalized, hopefully. And so in this reality, these men would know Psalm 118. And so what Peter does then is he calls their attention. First, we have in verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 118, uh, a thanksgiving for all the people or from all the people, a call to praise. We have in verses 5 through 21, the assurance that the Lord prevails. So that's important. If you crucify the Messiah, uh, the Lord has to prevail in raising him from the dead. But then he cites verse 22, the stone the builders rejected. Now we talked about this this morning in terms of the Feast of Booths, where you have that gathering together, the enjoyment of harvest, uh, the assurance of that rest, and then it ends in the temple. So where verse 22 becomes very significant is you can think of Israel in exile longing to worship in the temple, right? Well, verse 22 speaks of the stone that the builders rejected. And looking at this, if you're familiar uh, with the controversy of the stone, some say that it's the stone that's put in the dome or the archway uh, to hold the archway in check, or it's a foundation stone that basically sets the building square and holds the building together. Uh, the reality is, as I look at this again, I've come to realize it's probably the foundation stone but I also have to understand, I don't think we're going to get to heaven. Peter's going to stand there if he's a guardian of the gate and ask you, now what is that stone? Is it the capstone or is it the foundation stone? And if you get it wrong, you're out. So the reality is, it doesn't matter. The, the, the point is the stone is an essential stone. It holds the building together. That's the central point of this stone. And so when Peter says the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The distinction between the temple that is made in Psalm 118, or at least shown, is we're moving from the Solomon temple that was made by earthly craftsmen to a temple that is made by God. And so when Peter does this, and we think of Paul being mentored by Peter, we think of Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, of how we have, you know, the church is built into foundations of the prophets and apostles and Christ being that chief cornerstone. And so Peter is taking Psalm 118, incorporating this into his sermon, expounding on this and saying, this is why the resurrection of Christ is so essential. Because in the resurrection of Christ, he's taking his people, assembling them together, building a temple, not like Solomon 
but the true everlasting temple, building them together into Christ as being the stones of this temple. And so Peter wants them to understand if you're going to deny the resurrection of Christ, you deny the essence of what Moses said. You deny the prophets. You deny the writings. You deny your whole scripture and your canon. So Peter's making explicit, this is a fulfillment of what Psalm 118 said. This Christ is the one who builds his New Testament together. Then you find in verse 12, the explicit answer where Peter really drives us home. There is no salvation in anyone else. In other words, the force is, if you deny that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Messiah, you're not in the Lord. You don't have the blessings of salvation. Peter's making it that black and white for us. He's saying it's real simple. Either you affirm who Jesus Christ is, he's been raised from the dead, he's building his temple, he's building us together in him, that's where you have life. If you deny he's the Lord, you don't have life. If you say he's not the exclusive way to heaven, you're denying what the prophets and the writings have said. And so Peter is not saying this to be rude or offensive. He's saying this because out of love for truth, He's communicating the only way of life. And when you think about who Jesus of Nazareth is and what he has done, whom you crucified, when you study the mission of Christ, especially Luke with the drama of Christ turning his face to Jerusalem in 9 verse 51, he's going to face death. He knows that's his destiny to take away sin, but he also knows that he will be raised to life. And Peter's saying in that resurrection, even now in this life, we're being built together as this New Testament temple people who will enjoy the fellowship and presence of God for eternity. And so in conclusion then, when we ask that question, how do we know that Christ is the only way of salvation? How do we know that? Well, we can simply say Acts 4 verse 12 explicitly tells us. Uh, it's right there. It's pretty explicit and it's tough to get away from what Peter says. But we also have to understand the richness of this. That Christ being crucified is to take away that eternal damnation. The fundamental problem. The crippled man experienced healing by the power of Jesus of Nazareth who had been raised from the dead. Testifies to the overwhelming power of God that he really reverses the effects of sin. That's what that miracle is testifying to. The reality is that when we recognize a resurrected Christ, we understand that we are brought together as his temple people, secured and made alive in him. The call then for us is to proceed in a confidence that as the Lord says, I am your shield and defender, the very uh, opening to the promise and the covenant of grace that the Lord makes to Abram. When he makes that statement, we can say, but how do I know he really is a shield and defender? Because he set his face to Jerusalem. Because he was sentenced to death by the hands of godless and lawless men. Because he endured the wrath of God and endured hell. And because it was testified and made plain, being vindicated from the dead, that hell could not hold him. He is overcome uh, only in the power of God by his faithfulness and what he has done. Our preservation, we can't merit it. Christ merited his resurrection. 
Christ merited heaven. He earned it as the second person of the Trinity who's taken on the flesh. Our life, our redemption, is only found as we are joined to Christ, as we walk in the power of his spirit, and as we take hold of him by faith. Let us then proceed seeing ourselves as a temple people, made alive in a resurrected Christ, the God-man who has entered history and who has overcome. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.